Welcome to Out of the Box Radio with me, your host, Christine Blasdale. Out of the Box Radio is a weekly podcast of audible ear candy dedicated to bringing a fresh perspective on this thing that we call life. And each and every week, we're going to be diving into the topics that matter most with lively conversations on issues such as health, wellness, and transformational healing, all with the goal of creating a better world and becoming a happier human being. I will be your tour guide for this epic adventure, and each and every week we're going to be embarking on a journey with the ultimate goal being transformation to our highest potential. And now, let's get out of the box. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Out of the Box with Christine. I am your host, Christine Blasdale, and I am so stoked that you are with me today because this program is truly one of my favorite subjects. My guest is Mr. John Barber, and at 15, he was a Canadian ninth grade dropout. At 46, he changed the face of American television as the creator, producer, principal writer, and co-host of Real People, TV's first reality TV show. Known as the godfather of reality TV from 1979 to 1981, this number one show for NBC often garnered a 50 share, which in TV talk is the most of any show in TV history. By 1970, he was the original host of AM Los Angeles, where he won his first of five Emmys, interviewing guests like Muhammad Ali, Cesar Chavez, and Ronald Reagan. His most highly rated and acclaimed morning show after booking New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison to talk about his investigation into the murder of President John F. Kennedy. I want to welcome to the show a dear friend of mine and um, someone who you are going to fall in madly in love with uh, after you hear this program, Mr. John Barber. John, welcome to Out of the Box with Christine. Oh, Christine, thank you so much. I'm really, really delighted to be here, and I can't thank you enough for having me once again, because when I was here a year ago, you helped to make the American media and the second assassination of President John F. Kennedy one of the most successful films on the Internet, so thank you indeed. Well, it's uh, it's an incredible film. It's an incredible legacy from you. The work that you've done is just amazing. And you have a brand new book out. We're, we're going to talk a, ba- a bit about your book and, of course, the Garrison Tapes and John F. Kennedy, The Assassination. But this, the title of this book is just hilarious. And, and your, and your uh, subtitle here is even, is even better. Your Mother's Not a Virgin. <laughs> <laughs> the Bumpy Life and Times of the Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American TV, written by John Barber. Your mother's not a virgin. There's a story behind that title, isn't there? Yes, and uh, I must tell you, I have hundreds of people telling me that they're going to buy the book just because of the title. They said it's the best title of a book ever written. It's so captivating. But again, like all the wonderful things in my life, Christine, everything wonderful happened to me happened by accident. And all the disasters were those things that were really well planned. (laughs) And it was well planned that I was going to get Jim Garrison on my morning show. I, I originated the AM show here in Los Angeles on KBC in 1970. In 1967, Jim Garrison arrested Clay Shaw, and he said publicly, we have solved the crime. Uh, Our president was murdered by the Central Intelligence Agency, and we will get convictions when we get the trial. 
But he never got to trial for a couple of years because the government kept getting in his way, as did the uh, media. And as a street kid, I used to tell my friends, you know, if the man has nothing, why don't they get out of his way and just let him fall on his, fall on his face? In any event, he lost the trial. He took Claysha to trial on January 29, 1969, the birth date of my son, Serendipity. And uh, it was over with. I paid little attention to uh, the murder of John Kennedy. I was a stand-up comic who locked out in getting that morning show. But one day, I'm in Edmund's bookstore on Hollywood Boulevard, and I see this book called Heritage of Stone. And underneath is the author, Jim Garrison, I think. Is that that DA in New Orleans? So, Christine, I picked a book up, and for three hours, I stood in the middle of the store reading the book. There was material about the trial that nobody ever heard about. First off was that he had to sue Time Life to get the Zapruder film to show the jury. And Time Life didn't want to release it. And finally, the Supreme Court said, you have to release it. Then there was a doctor named Fink, the only forensic pathologist at Bethesda who was supposed to participate in the autopsy. He was called by the defense lawyer, Diamond, for Clay Shaw to say that the bullet struck in the back of the head. But under cross-examination, he said he doesn't know where the bullet struck because generals and admirals were preventing anyone from performing an autopsy. And then Garrison staff is saying, you mean there was no autopsy? What about the x-rays and the films? And Fink says, we were not allowed to even look at the x-rays in the films. So if you go to the 26 volumes of the war report, you will not find one x-ray. You will not find one film. What you have are cartoon drawings of the bullet going through the head. Wow. It looks like Mad Magazine published wow. the, the Warren Report. So anyway, I was so moved. The next day, I, I, I get up 6 o'clock in the morning. We went on live at 7. Called them in New Orleans. I got the DA's office, and this bass baritone voice answered and said, hello. And I said, could I speak to Mr. Garrison, please? And he said, this is Mr. Garrison. And I said, Mr. Garrison, my name is John Barber, and I host the morning show here in L.A. It's the most successful show in Los Angeles. We beat out the Today Show. I just won an Emmy. I said my first Emmy because I figured I'm going <laughs> to win, win some more. And I said, I just read Heritage of Stone. And he giggled, and he said, oh, John, you must be the other one. I only sold two <laughs> copies. Well, you've got to love somebody like that who, under that pressure, has a kind of sense of humor. And he says to me, you'll never get away with it. Have you ever seen me on network television? I said, well, only the times that you sued NBC because they deliberately slandered you in an hour documentary uh, and uh, we might talk about that later. I mean, NBC should have lost their license, and Walter Sheridan, the producer, should have been in prison, but we'll get to that a little bit later. So I said to him, you must come on the show. We'll talk for a half an hour. I'll open the phones up. We're the first, first show in town to open phones to people. Wow. And we'll chat because everybody wants to talk to you. So he reluctantly agreed. So we started chatting. And he said, John, you know, it's 1970. It's 70 years after the murder of John Kennedy. And you know that the Harris polls show that 
81%, that's pretty high, of all Americans do not believe the Warren report or that Oswald either did it alone or did it at all. And I said, well, Mr. Garrison, with so many people believing that, why isn't something happening? He said, well, the next question is worse. And what does it say about us as people? The second question was, would you want another thorough investigation? And guess what? Only 23% said yes. What does that say about us? So without missing a beat, I said, Mr. Garrison, what it says to me is I know what my mother and father did on the pool table or in the back alley or the rumble seat of my car, their car, but don't ever tell me my mother's not a virgin. Well, he howled and, (laughs) and he said, that sounds like Mark Twain. Mark, Mark Twain said, it's easier to fool people than to convince them that they have been fooled. And John, my boy, mm. we've been fooled since November 22nd, 1963. So that's the title of the, of, of the book, which I really, really love. Now, in the book, it's my dealings with Garrison and RFK Jr. on the 50th anniversary. And those other stories are only a small portion of book. But they are so important because people will learn something about this case being solved by this man that they never knew existed. You, Yeah, you were saying earlier before we started uh, the show that – he names names, right? He he in 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 the material that he has, he he lays it all out. Oh, oh to I'm exactly so glad who you that up. to Be- who killed our president, and nobody wants to know. Guess guess what? When I started doing the second film, I called some producers and directors and writers I know in town, Christine, and I said, "What's the most important movie ever made in America?" And they would say. Well, it was a Godfather or a Citizen Kane or Gone with the Wind. And, nope. I, w- and I would say, no, they're great films, but an important film, like an important book, and there was a time in America when books would change our country. Uh, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle Made Food Save, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring got us into the environment. That doesn't happen any, any anymore. So uh, anyway... JFK, the movie, was the most important film until the Garrison tapes and part two of the Garrison tapes because it got the Assassination Records Act passed. And according to the uh, mandate by Congress, they were supposed to be released last October. And the few were released. And then President Trump caved into the CIA, as, as all presidents do, when they said, we're not releasing any more files because of national security. Now, a 55-year-old murder, what has that got to do with national security? But the truth is that the CIA files, they do not release any blueprints that say, this is how we kill the son of a bitch, because the CIA talks in code. What they do not want released are the garrison files. There's a fellow named Jefferson Morley who spent five years in the Washington courts under the Freedom of Information Act to get all of the garrison files released. And a judge ruled against it. Guess who the judge was? Who? Kavanaugh. No. Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court. Now, here's a dichotomy. You have a president who says he wants the files released, but then he uh, uh, appoints a seat. 
Supreme Court justice who says we're not releasing them. The, uh, the files from the Warren report are out in 2039. The files from Garrison are not out for 20 years after that because he names names. But guess what? As a public service, since the Central Intelligence Agency is not releasing the files, and since the President of the United States is not forcing them as mandated by Congress to do that, I feel it's my duty as somebody who loves this country. It gave me a sanctuary. It gave me a life. It gave me a family. I feel compelled to release the garrison files. I have 67 boxes of them. I started six weeks ago. The first files I released were the files of Clay Shaw. Jim Garrison did not lose the trial in New Orleans. He lost the conspiracy portion, but he won the perjury portion. And if you want to talk about the fact, he could have nailed them in a heartbeat. In the Rem- tell our listeners who Clay Shaw was. Clay so Shaw was. was the handler of Lee Harvey Oswald in New Orleans. And Jim Garrison arrested him. The first person he was looking into was a guy named David Ferry. But when he was about to arrest David Ferry, David Ferry conveniently committed suicide. As they do. Yeah, leaving two suicide notes in case they didn't find the first one. That's why Garrison arrested Shaw. He didn't want another suicide on on his hand. The second files I released were the files of Lee Harvey Oswald. And the third files, and I would urge everyone, go to my site, johnbarbersworld.com, and just Google uh, Jim Garrison files on David Ferry. You will find things in these files. Now, these uh, they're YouTube, and they're only like six or eight minutes long, even though the files are hundreds of pages. I put up all the pages on my site for you to read, but I entice you to go to read uh, read them because I want to tease you with six or seven or eight of the most important files. So if you want to talk about some of the things that are so I want to well I want to give people because they're all they're all like everybody right now is just like oh my god oh, <laughs> give me that website again. So it's John uh, John Barber's website is John J O H N John Barber B A R B O U R, and it's John Barber's like plural John Bar- Barber's World dot com. JohnBarbersWorld.com, and on YouTube, do they just do a search for John Barber and um, Jim Garrison? Yeah, you you can go to YouTube and you can uh, YouTube, uh, YouTube search the Garrison files, and they are Shaw, Oswald, or Ferry, or go to my site, and not only will you find the original YouTubes, you will find, for example, in David Ferry's case, there are eighty-four pages. In this video, you will not only see stuff that you will not believe, you will discover that Jim Garrison solved the case that afternoon. Uh, It's just astonishing, absolutely astonishing. I have told people, just read those 84 pages of that file. You never have to buy another book on the assassination. You never have to watch another movie. You don't even have to watch my documentaries, even though it's Jim Garrison. I was the only one. In 10 years following his loss of the first part of the the trial, on his deathbed, when Oliver Stone was making JFK, Oliver wanted to make a documentary. And Jim Garrison said no because told his daughter Elizabeth, who was the intermediary, John lost his first great job at AM because of me, and he lost real people, the best show 
in American history because he tried to tell my story on NBC. So John is going to do the documentary. Oh, wow. And the day that it won the San Sebastian Film Festival Award is the day Jim Garrison died. Wow. I just felt I have just absolute chills, goosebumps and chills all through my body. You know why, John? Because you are you are such a good human being. You are such a good human being. Oh, no, no. And you're honest. No, no, no. No, no. no because you know what? No, because you're honest. You're, you're, you're honest and you tell it like it is, and you're not afraid Listen, I was born in 1964, November 1964, and as a baby coming into this world, I felt what was happening, the energy. People knew, and that was a public execution. You know, that's a wonderful thing. People knew that's a wonderful that he thing was murdered. That you say that, because when I screened this film two years ago at the Texas Theater in Dallas where Lee was arrested, there were 300 people there. And 250 of them hadn't even been born when he was killed. And he gave it, they gave it a 10-minute standing ovation. I was so moved. I was supposed to do a question and answer. I couldn't do it. But let me tell you something. I am not a good person. I am just – I'm an <laughs> – because I'll tell you, I, I was primarily a comic. And, you know, when I, I have – my wife is the most amazing person in the world. She's the only person in the world I know who does not envy a soul – doesn't say a negative word about anyone, and I wake up every morning surprised she's still there because <laughs> being married to a comic is like being married to a golfer. They're the most self-centered people in the world. They're just unbearable. Now, listen, it was I was booked into the hungry eye. My first, second professional job was the great hungry eye that made Mort Saul and Jonathan Winders and Barbara Streisand and Bill Cosby before he started dispensing <laughs> drugs to women, okay? And I was such a success doing topical humor about the Kennedys, they booked me in the fourth week in November. Now, here I'm about to become a huge star. I'm going to go back in there and be a smash. Now, it's Friday, November 22nd. I know exactly where I am, even though George Bush couldn't remember that he was in Dallas. Uh-huh. And I was writing jokes. And all of a sudden, around noon, it comes over the news that the president had been shot. I did not think I lost the president. I was like Von Meter. Do you remember Von Meter? He did the greatest, most successful comedy album ever. It's called The First Family, as a matter of where he does imitations of all the Kennedys. Mm -hmm. Sold five million in ten days. And even in our movie, President Kennedy's talking about it. I mean, he was so charming, John Kennedy. And I did not think I lost the president. I thought, like Von Meter, I lost my act. And so that's... I'm not a good person in that, that, that respect, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist. The conspiracy existed, so I reveal it, so I'm a conspiracy reporter. What I am primarily is a storyteller because when I was a kid, I was sort of abandoned when I was six. And when I wasn't skating on a rink at a reformatory in Toronto, I was either at the movie theater in a library, and it was the listening to and the reading of stories as a kid that kept me alive. Of course, now that I'm older, it's the telling of the stories that are in, in the book. Uh, so 
I am not, I mean, you'll see in the book, you know, I was arrested a couple of times in Canada for crimes. I came to the United States at 17 to be a professional gambler. That's what I was going to do. And then when I realized that I was a really good gambler and I could do it, I had lost interest in it because I originally got into gambling because I was looking for friends. I wasn't looking for funds. Who wants to be friends with gamblers? They're just despicable people. <laughs> and I know <laughs> reading in reading your book, too, they were all trying to get you to drink and smoke, and you didn't do either one of them. <laughs> oh, gosh. Right? Yeah, that's a, that's a cute, cute story. I was... Fifteen at the time. Now, there were eight guys that we gambled with, and the, the, the oldest were in their early 40s. And everything that I could earn or steal, and I was very adept at both, I would be at these all-night sessions. But I never drank and I never smoked. Now, I didn't drink primarily because after my father went off to the peace and quiet of World War II and deserted us, Uncles in my house were like grapes. They came in bunches. And they would take my mother away and they'd either beat her or bang her, whatever it is that they did. So I was left sort of alone. That's why I really didn't drink. And, of course, I wanted to be able to smoke because I loved Jimmy Gagney and Humphrey Bogart and all these stars. And they started teasing me about the fact. They tried to get me to smoke or they tried to get me to drink, and I'm only 15. And then they accused me of being some religious nut because I'm not smoking and drinking. And I said, no, no, it has nothing to do that with that. Well, why aren't you doing that? I said, okay, I'll tell you. I love the story. I, I was working in a, a, a small confectionery store, and I stole a carton of cigarettes because I wanted to learn how to s smoke. So I lit the first one, and the smoke was burning my eyes. I'm a kid. I said, my God, this is terrible. Why would anybody do this? And I tried to hide the evidence, but I didn't know what to do with it. So I smoked it all, and I puked all afternoon. You smoked all of them? I smoked every single one of them, and I was green, <laughs> and I was sick. And then I said a few months later, because everybody I knew drank beer. I mean, my mother and it the was, uncles, It's a very American thing to do. Yeah, well, it was also a very Canadian thing to oh, do. Oh, that's right. And <laughs> Canadians make much better beer than Americans, from what I understand. So I told these guys another time I wanted to sample the taste of beer. Why is it that people like this taste? So I stole a carton of beer, and I took a couple of sips, and I spit it out. It was just god-awful. How can anybody drink this stuff? But I drank it all because I didn't know what else to do, and I got sick again and stopped. And then I said at one point, I said then a few months after that, I stole a dozen condoms. And I have two left. Well, every time I got in there, they howled. Every time I got in there to sit down and start gambling, they'd say, hey, kid, how many condoms do you have left? So still 10. Okay. So. That's hilarious. There's so many amazing um, stories in this book. It's Your Mother's Not a Virgin, the, bump, the Bumpy Life and Times of the Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American TV uh, by my dear friend uh, John Barber. I almost called you Dr. John Barber. Oh, that's funny. I, isn't that funny? Yeah. I don't know what it, is, I don't but, even know where that came from. There's so much to talk about here. Um, you know, I want to add something. You said. Yeah, come on in here. You were, you're born in, in 1964, and yet at that young age, you realize something about the world. Oh, yeah. Okay, oh, yeah. I'm going to tell you something. I hate to say this, and I don't want to offend anybody who's listening. I am the only person I know 
who has a totally open mind. Now, some people say it's open because there's nothing in it. What is not in it is any belief. I do not believe in anything because if you believe in something or somebody and somebody else can come along and create an original intelligent argument that says you may be wrong, you either will not look at it or you will only look at it to discredit it. Most people. Okay. And I don't – I could tell you how I lost my belief. I either know something or I don't know something. I lost my belief when I was 12 years of age. My mother had gone off to Buffalo with one of my uncles. My closest friend was a fellow named Don Lee. And Don Lee came from the only together family that I knew. I mean, I came from a severely dysfunctional family long before it was popular. But everybody was like that then except this family. I went over to their house on a Saturday when my mother was in America, and I asked Mrs. Lee if she would adopt me. She said, well, I can't do that. John, you have a mother. I said, yeah, come on over to my house. I'll show you I don't. She said, no, son, I, I, I couldn't. We can't do that. But would you like to come to church with us? And I said, yes, because I wanted to be with anybody especially this wonderful, warm family. So she gave me a book, and I said, what's this? She said, it's the Bible. She said, I want you to go home and read the Bible. Almost everything I read, Christine, I remember. I don't have a photographic memory, but it stays there. But I You have something like a photographic memory. Well, whatever it is, if it impacts you emotionally, it stays with you. And everything I read then impacted me. I memorized it from Genesis to Revelations, and I prayed every single night. She moved where she moved because they were across from this Baptist church. And in the middle of the services— the minister would stop and say, now you have your private moment with God. So I want you, all of you, to take your private moment. I've never seen it done before, but I thought it was a good idea. Of course, I prayed that when I got home, my father would be there. So instead of stopping at the Lees to get a sandwich, I'd rush home and open the door. My father was never there. I did this for 12 weeks. And the 12th week, When he said that, I just got up and left. And everybody noticed this 12-year-old kid is leaving. I went out and I sat on the cold stairs in front of the church. Of course, the minister came out right away, bless his heart, and put his hand on my shoulder. I almost cried because it was the first time anybody ever touched me. And then he said, son. Of course, that almost broke my heart again. He said, are you okay? And I said, yes, sir, but you know what? This is not for me. And he said, what's not for you? And I said, this praying business. He said, I beg your pardon? I said, you know, you tell us we're in the house of the Lord where God can hear us when we pray. I said, I I also was starting to pray at home. But I wet the bed and the room stank, and I didn't want God to smell where I was praying from, so I just did it here in your church. And it's not working. So he put his other hand on my other shoulder, and he said, John, you must understand God's will. Now, people are standing around listening to us. And I look up and I said, sir, I don't think I'm in it. Well, they started to laugh because this little kid had made a joke. Right. I'm not in God's will. So he says to me, and then everybody got quiet because he was being very stern. Don't let Satan take over your life. Now, I don't know where this came from. And I said, do you believe in Satan? 
He said, absolutely. And I said, well, isn't that proof that God does not exist? He said, how dare you say that? I said, well, you tell us God is almighty. If he's almighty, why doesn't he get rid of the guy? And then it dawned on me that I'm not going to be a believer anymore, but I'm going to tell you something. I know what I know, and I don't know how to explain this. I believe in serendipity. My life was almost predestined. I didn't want to meet Jim Garrison, and I didn't want to do the Garrison tapes. It was only an accident that I got real people on the air. Everything magical happened to me by accident. You'll read a story and hear a number of stories. I can only say it's divine intervention that somehow affected my life. Now, I'd like to say I don't believe in it, but I'm a witness to it. So I have to say it exists, but I don't know where it comes from. That was extremely well put. <laughs> that was extremely well put. You you know, uh, John, you, you touched on the fact that you, you know, you hadn't, you hadn't had that, that, that love and affection um, at a very young age. And I want, if you, if you can, to explain to our listeners a little bit about those early years um, growing up and having an emotionally unavailable um, mother and also f- father in, in many respects and, and how that set you on your, on your path. Um, I would think that that would be something extremely difficult, but then also you didn't know anything different, did you? No, I, I didn't know anything different, but one of the things that surprised me and I realized it later on is that my best friend was my mind. It kept me company. And, you know, I was often angry. Uh, I was never jealous. And I never in my life have been depressed. And I should have been depressed because so many absolutely horrible things happened to me. And I saw horrible, horrible things all of my life. I mean, the first time I was deported, they, they, uh, they had to drop me off in Chicago. They dropped me off in chains at Cook County Jail. And while I was sitting down and somebody was doing the paperwork, there were two detectives with a black guy. And they had his arms handcuffed behind him. And the black guy kept saying, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. And they saying, you did, you did, you did. Well, you're just going to hang around here until we get a confession. There was a large hook on the no, wall no. that was not a hook for a coat. Now, here I am, 17 years of age. I never saw anything like that. They took the guy's arms, put them behind him, lifted him up, and hung him on the hook. And he was screaming and howling. I mean, I, I didn't know these things existed. It wasn't the America that I saw in the movies. And speaking of the movies, when I was interviewing Jim Garrison, September 5th, 1981, Jim Garrison originally believed the Warren Report because he said, John, I was involved and born born into an authority syndrome. He said, I was in the FBI authority figures. I was in the military authority figures. The only picture in his office, he was at Dachau when they rescued that concentration camp in 1945. And underneath it, he wrote, lest we ever forget. But he said, it never dawned on me to doubt my government. 
And he only got into it by accident. Now, here's another thing. Serendipity again? Serendipity again. My mentor, when I started as a comic, was Red Fox. Oh, that's... Oh, I wanted... And and, and here I am, this white Goyesha kid from Canada. From Canada. and And I only have Red Fox as a mentor because my wife was good friends with Red Fox and Dick Gregory, and Dick Gregory did the liner notes of my first album, It's Tough to Be White, which also you can see him listen to on my site, and a lot of it is, is still topical. And I was the first one to put Red Fox on television, and that led to Sanford and Son, and that happens to be his real name. His real name is John Sanford. He called himself Fred because his brother died, and that was his, his brother's name. So I said to Mr. Garrison, he accidentally met... Congressman Hale Boggs. He was the only dissenting member of the Warren Report, and they refused to publish his dissent. He went. He met uh, Garrison accidentally on a plane, and he said, that kid with that old Italian rifle, he couldn't shoot nothing with that thing. And Garrison said, you mean? And he says, yeah, a lot more to it than that, Jim. So Garrison got three sets of the Warren Report. The Warren Report is 26 pages. He had one in the car, one in the office, one at home. He literally memorized it. Hale Boggs then got on a plane. He went before Congress, and you can look it up in the congressional record. He said, J. Edgar Hoover needs to be fired, Mm -hmm. and we have to investigate the CIA and the FBI because everybody's lied to us about the murder of Martin Luther King and John Kennedy. Not long after that, he's driven to the airport by Bill Clinton, gets on a small what? plane, <laughs> gets on a small plane. It crashes in Alaska. They never find him or the plane. My contention is that Bill Clinton, who became the worst president in American history, was CIA from the time he was in college and they sent him to Russia. Mm-hmm. How else could this guy and his wife survive the disasters and the deaths that surround them? Unless they're shielded by the Praetorian Guard of the Central Intelligence Agency. Wow. And when I asked Mr. Garrison, finally, Mr. Garrison, sometimes people say things to you, Christine, that they're unrelated to fact. For example, he showed me the death certificate. You can't find it in the Warren Report signed of, by— Of Kennedy? Of Kennedy. He showed me the death certificate signed around 1 p.m. by Dr. McClellan, gunshot wound to the right temple. You can't find it in the Warren Report. And I said to Mr. Garrison, whatever made—and Red Fox said when he heard that was interested in Garrison. This is what Red Fox said about Jim Garrison. Heroes ain't born. They're cornered. Oh. Well, he was cornered by learning the truth, and that's what happened. That's what happened. And so I said to him, whatever made you think you could take on the federal government— he said, John, I guess as a kid, I saw one too many Frank Capra movies. Well, that was me in Canada, six years of age, looking at Jimmy Stewart and these great Frank Capra movies. And Jim Garrison's story is the most important American story in history, except for the revolution. It's Jim Garrison's story, and it's a sad Frank Capra story, except that the truth will live on. Did you see the movie Viva Zapata? No, no. Oh, you must watch it. It's a brilliant film starring Marlon Brando. Of course, he plays Zapata. And it's uh, 
uh, Ilya Kazan directed it, did a fantastic job. Well, of course, uh, Zapata is lied to and cornered by the government, and they fill him full of 100 bullet holes. But what goes on is his white horse traveling through the mountains as though the truth of Zapata's struggle will live on. Jim Garrison's story in, in our films, the Garrison tapes in the American media and the second assassination of President John F. Kennedy will be around a lot long, longer than any book ever written about it is forgotten or any film ever made about it. Probably the only book that will survive is Mark Lane's Rush to Judgment. I, I was um, I was going to ask you, do you would you, do you think that there's there ever the possibility of there being a feature film on Jim Garrison? No, no. It will never. It would never. No. Be made. You know who? Uh, I'll tell you. Because I, I, that I, would be a powerful. I, I I'd always thought if I had enough money and made enough money, I would start a scholarship at Tulane University where he went to law scholarship in the name of Jim Garrison. Then I suddenly realized that most of the congressmen and senators are lawyers, so I don't want to create another lawyer. So I, what I would do yeah. is I would make a documentary about the second greatest American artist and political activist ever in this country, and that's Paul Robeson. Because I, and for I, our listeners who don't know who Paul Robeson is, first of all, please do um, a, a look him up. What an amazing human being. And, um, and talent. And this, oh, and extremely talented. Go, go to uh, TCM and see if you can find the original showboat. He's the first one to sing Old Man River. It will make you cry. But long before the NAACP, he was fighting for equality and, uh, and by himself. And, of course, he's eventually murdered by the FBI. This, uh, was he murdered by the FBI? He was poisoned by the FBI. There seems to be quite a few uh, illuminaries. I, w- I don't want to say illuminaries. There's, there's quite a few very beautiful, uh, beautiful, brave spirits that uh, come through this this world and meet an untimely death, either uh, suicide with air quotes or um, you know, a, a crazy you know. a crazy lone gunman. Uh, you know, I mean, look at look at JFK, um, Robert Kennedy, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, I know it, we're coming up onto the uh, three year anniversary of Prince as well, yes. and th- and that stinks to high heaven. His death. Well, I'll look at Kurt Cobain, a friend of mine yeah. na- named John Potash. You should have him on your show sometime. He wrote Drugs as Weapons Against Us and how it killed two dozen very, very famous musicians in this country. And they probably did in John Lennon. They probably did in John Kennedy Jr., Oh, I, I, as soon as, as soon as uh, with John Kennedy Jr. when I knew he was running, and he was running against, um, I think it was Hillary. It would have been yes, right in, for in New, York. New York. In New York, I knew as soon as I heard that story. His days were numbered. No, it's, it's it was soon as I heard that um, the, the plane went down and blah blah, blah blah. I said that he was taken out. You know, I have a lot of people. Uh, we had the screening recently in only at a huge JFK conference of the movie. And everybody, of course, is asking me about 
RFK because it's easier to prove that Sirhan did not uh, shoot uh, Bobby than it is Oswald to prove Oswald's innocence because of Thomas Noguchi's autopsy report that says the bullet struck a foot and a half from the, the back of his ear because of the extensive powder burns. Well, do you know that Godfrey Isaacs and I created in the middle 80s when the CIA and the LAPD were trying to get rid of Noguchi, CIA trying to get rid of Noguchi because he wouldn't alter his autopsy report, Godfrey and Isaacs and I formed the People's Committee to save Thomas Noguchi as the independent coroner of Los Angeles County. It's a wonderful story in there and how we lost. I don't want to get into it right now, but I, I was uh, Frank Sinatra's private writer for three and a half years. I wrote his jokes. I wrote his letters to the editor, and I was about to make the first visual autobiography of a famous performer, and that was Francis. That's what he liked to be called when, when it all, all ended. But my three and a half years with him were just fabulous. And you have you have so many so many stories, so many moments of your life in this uh, in this big beautiful book. Your mother's not a virgin. <laughs> the bumpy life and times of the Canadian dropout who changed the face of American TV, and it just goes. You know, you're a wonderful. You are. You're a wonderful writer, and I love the fact too that that you were um, that you did movie reviews you know that and that it's it's something that came natural to you one of my very first jobs one of my very first jobs writing was doing uh was doing movie reviews and i did them for free because i just wanted to write and i wanted to get uh, published but uh the beauty of your work is that you're you're just you're brutally honest and you don't see that anymore they don't there's not a lot of uh blunt do you know for the five real <laughs> for the five years that I was in, at NBC where I won Emmys three years in a row for the reviews, three times I was fired and kicked off the station, and I would never sign a contract with them because I didn't want them to own my material, and I originated the movie reviews on the AM show, and uh, I replaced. There was a fellow. At Los Angeles Magazine, he became a, a, a writer at the L.A. Times, and he also did some mash scripts. He became really close friends of mine, and he wrote one of the funniest lines of a review I ever saw. He reviewed Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, <laughs> and he said it starts out with a bang and ends up chitty. Was that the whole review? That was the review. Brilliant. And then <laughs> my best friend who dubbed me the godfather of reality television. Now, I don't want to be dubbed that now because I don't want to re be responsible <laughs> and take vows for the degeneracy that is on television now. Because in those days when I was in television, you had to be – you had to have a modicum of talent, a modicum of intelligence or even character to get on television. The only thing you need now is an, a lack of shame and embarrassment. <laughs> I mean it's just god-awful. I, when I started, it was three or four networks. Now it's 500, and I hear people all the time, they have the, they have the remote in their hand, and they're surfing, and they say there's nothing on television. You've got 504 networks. It's more straws in the same septic tank. 
and it will never get better. So I'm going to say something. I don't know how much time we have left, but I'm going to say something. To talk about the linchpin to everything wrong in America is a John F. Kennedy assassination. It is an open case at the Justice Department. The only person who could possibly get it open is Robert Kennedy Jr., and he probably hasn't the courage of his father or his uncle to do that because we are a nation of sheep, and we're a celebrity-soaked culture. I mean, if Oliver Stone wanted to go there, we would follow him or maybe Jesse Ventura, but they're not going to do that, okay? Because talking about opening that case terrifies people. But President Donald Trump, who keeps railing about fake news, could make America great again by doing just one thing. One of the things that made Bill Clinton the worst president in American history, aside from signing NAFTA and repealing Glass-Steagall, was signing the Communications Act in the 90s that turned 95% of our media over to six corporations. These corporations are clearly monopolies. Now, a lot of you might remember in the 60s and 70s, AT&T was dismembered by the Supreme Court. And being in show business, we all know that the same thing happened to the movie studios. They had to get rid of theaters. All Trump has to do, he doesn't need a gun. He just needs his pen, as George Bush did to create this fake war in Iraq. All he has to do is sign an executive order reversing the Communications Act. When John Kennedy was killed, a company could only own five television stations or five radio stations or five newspapers. 1,500 different Americans owned the media. Now, it says that supposedly it's the, the people's media. It's not. It's corporations' media. Mark Twain said it a hundred years ago. If you do not read American newspapers, you're uninformed. If you do, you're misinformed. We are constantly misinformed. Garrison said the first fake war was Russia. They lost 25 million people. How could they be a threat to the United States? You will learn things in that documentary and in this book that will just astound you. And thankfully, there are a lot of things there that will make you laugh really hard. <laughs> I love you, John Parper. <laughs> I'm wondering, with in your correspondence uh, in dealing with with Jim Garrison, did he ever did he ever tell you or or confide in you about was he ever threatened personally by it, uh, uh, the powers that be, so to speak? Uh, yes, he was. He, he was surrounded by bodyguards constantly. They tried to set him up in sexual entrapments constantly because, like John Kennedy, he was a womanizer. But that's got nothing to do with how he did his job. But then he was offered, and it's in the film, he tells a story, uh, he was offered a federal ju- judgeship if he would stop the investigation. Oh, it's the same game. It's the same game. It's the same game. You get promoted if you shut up or if you play along with them. Are you are you familiar with William Pepper? I've had William Pepper on my show twice. He wrote a wonderful book called The Plot to Kill the King. And I said to him, as a matter of fact, I had him and Paul Schrade on last year after they argued before. Yes. Uh, uh, about getting – they had proof 
that obviously Sirhan did not do that. Sirhan fired blanks, actually. Well, and the reason he fired blanks, the real assassins, there were two of them behind Bobby, because if he'd fired real bullets, he might have killed the assassins. Right. He fired blanks. Right. Well, and then there was, yeah. And, there's... and then when they lost, they tried to get him parole. The head of the parole board said it will never happen because Sirhan is now a political prisoner. And that's a quote from William Pepper and a quote from them. William Pepper also, so so William Pepper was the attorney who represented Sirhan, correct? Yes. Or he, he came and he on. Also he also re- represented Coretta King. He also represented the King family. Um, they won a lawsuit. Yes, they did. It was it a civil. It was a civil it was, case. It was a civil case proving proving that, that the government murdered Martin Luther King. M- murdered Martin Luther King, and, and all Coretta was asking for was just enough money to bury her husband. And this was not front page news. This was not covered on. This was not covered on those twenty four hour uh, news outlets. This was not even um, a blip. On the what radar. Ab- what about plausible denial? Now, uh, a brilliant book by by Mark Lane, and the reason I bring this up is uh, twofold. A, an outfit created by the CIA to change foreign policy to turn us into a country of perpetual warfare. You have had two fake Lee Harvey Oswald trials. Why would you have a trial of somebody who's proven innocent on November 22nd? By witnesses, and he failed the paraffin test. Then again, when Garrison uh, arrested Shaw in 67, he, he cleared Lee Harvey Oswald of any complicity. The last Oswald trial at a university in Texas had a hung jury. That means some people think, well, maybe he did it. Why not a real trial? And that real trial occurred in, in Florida. Spotlight magazine and a fellow named Victor Marchetti, a CIA renegade, said that Howard Hunt was a bag man who delivered the money to the shooters in Dallas. So Hunt sued, won $650,000. Spotlight hired Mark Lane. Mark Lane not only got a reversal, but the jury foreman said, the saddest thing in my life was to agree with Mark Lane that the federal government not only murdered the president and then covered it up, but that E. Howard Hunt was a major player in it. That is a play that could be on Broadway. I remember in the 60s when when the news of the assassination was still hot, people were protesting Vietnam, and there was a little bit of democracy. People were voting with their feet and bodies by marching to Chicago in 1968. That's what ended the war. There was a a lady named Garson who wrote this wonderful adaptation of Macbeth, and she called it Macbird. And it was never covered by the media, but it was a brilliant play about JFK murdering Martin, murdering John Kennedy. There's a lot of talent out there, but they're shying away from doing anything media, meaningful because it's a career-ending enterprise for them. The bad guys have won. Mm. What do we do? What you do is you keep yourself informed. The truth will not set you free. It will just replace the ignorance that you have. The only thing that will set you free is action. And the little action that I took at the end of the film in September of 81 when I interviewed Garrison, he gave me a long list of people who were alive who should be arrested. 
And when I, at the, I ended my film by putting together a wanted poster of the 10 people alive who should still be arrested or interrogated if they open the case. Uh, and I delivered it to the Justice Department. That's all the action I could take. I was not a star anymore. So nobody's going to follow me. Nobody ever reported it. Never got any attention. Well, now that list is down to nine because George Bush Sr. died. And the sad thing about his death is that it was natural. And he did not, and he was not um, held accountable to the war crimes. No, or the not, crimes against not humanity. at all. But you know what? It's even like James Doolittle in the Second World War when they were firebombing Japan and Tokyo. He said, we better win this war. Otherwise, we're going to be in the darkest war criminals. James Doolittle said that, a real American hero. I think I think the, the next generation of history books, it would be wonderful to have people like you, John Barber, write them or at least – Add your notes <laughs> to th- to them. H- history is it. It is. It belongs to the victors, right? I mean, as far as the retelling of the story, because yes, if who you was re- it? Who was it that said treason will never triumph? Because if it does, none dare call it treason. Treason triumph on November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, and it's never going to reverse itself because. It's not just a few people who were involved. It's literally thousands. Look at the congressmen and the senators and the bankers who all profited by the fake Vietnam War, by the fake, uh, the fake Iraq War. Do you know that during the Second World War under Truman, a dozen CEOs were sent to prison for dealing with the enemy? There hasn't been a trial like that in America since then. And look at all of the people that you could send to prison from Halliburton and a bunch of these corporations for dealing with the enemy. They deal with the enemy. And this business of Iran being an enemy is just an absolute and total farce. Hear, hear. I agree. Oh, my gosh. I wish I had an applause track for you. <laughs> That's funny. John, That's funny. Uh, we're out of time, but I could talk to you forever and ever about about your life and about the truth of, of uh, our, our most recent history and those that have been taken from us. And like I said, I am so proud to, uh, to call you my friend, and I am so happy. I will ha- can, I, can I have you back on the show again sometime? I would love to come back on, and I can re- recommend a couple of people like John Potash to talk about drugs as weapons against. I know some brilliant, brilliant people. Oh, I'll pick your who, brain. Don't who, you worry. Who do be- magnificent work. And... I hate to say this because it sounds religious, but God bless you. Oh, John. God bless you. <laughs> John Barber has been my guest this hour, and he is the phenomenal author of the, the brand-new book, Your Mother's Not a Virgin, The Bumpy Life and Times of the Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American TV. There's in, there's in-depth uh, conversations in here uh, as well about uh, Jim Garrison. I, I really encourage you to get the book and also check out, if you can, the documentary, uh, the film, the um the second assassination? It's called The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy on Amazon, uh, YouTube, uh, uh, Google. It's Vimeo and iTunes. Okay, so please check it out. And are, Is there a link and information at your website as well? For yes, if you go to johnbarbersworld.com, you can see the first documentary for nothing. You can also see 
The second doc- best documentary ever made about a performer, it's called Ernie Kovacs, Television's Original Genius. Me on The Tonight Show with Sinatra and on Dean Martin with Red Fox. There's a lot of great stuff there, not just heavy stuff. All right. So we're going to, you know what I'll do is with this show, I will provide a link as well for people so they can just go directly. It's johnbarbersworld.com. And I'll have that link associated with this uh, with this show. You can share it on, as always, with all of the programs, you can share it through YouTube. That's the best way because you can put it on your, post it on your social media. Let people hear uh, this show. This is the thing, too, is that we stay, when we stay silent, when we stay scared, when we stay uh, quiet and small, the, 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 the tyranny and the, the, the criminality and the murder and the mayhem and all of that, it continues. It's only when we're educated and it's only when we feel that we can share this information with others. And I encourage you to share this show and please check out his website. Let, let me add this mm-hmm. because you said that if we speak up. No mob or no crowd ever contributed anything to the growth of human society. Only the black sheep have done that. Galilea, Tesla, mm-hmm. only the black sheep. Jesus only started out with 12, and he's done pretty well. Castro started out with 10 in a rowboat. It just takes a handful to start it. And the intellectual founder of this country was one of my other heroes, and that's Thomas Paine, who was the son of a a poor shoemaker in England. And his is a magnificent story also. They're my three heroes in this country, Garrison, Thomas Paine, and Paul Robeson. What good company <laughs> they all have. I'm happy to be a black sheep. <laughs> Man. <laughs> thank you so much, John. Thanks. So much for joining thank us you, today. I just love talking. I love talking to you. And I and I loved um I, I loved getting this information out to you, wonderful listeners. Uh, please remember that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google Play, all the regular stuff. And you can also subscribe to the YouTube channel. But please do share the show with uh, family and friends and on your social media. It's just um, it's just a blessing to know this man sitting next to me, and I'm so very grateful. And I'm grateful to you, wonderful listeners, for tuning in again today. Until next time, I want to remind you to always think outside that damn box. Until next time, bye for now. That was wonderful, Christy. Uh,